Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm Mahilius, and today Julia is with me once again in uh, in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone, and thank you very much for having me again. So, what are we going to listen to today? So today we're going to listen to Mary Hollingsworth discuss her most recent book, Princes of the Renaissance. Okay, so why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about Mary and her background. So Mary is a, has a very interesting background. That's partially why I, I, I chose uh, to read her book. So Mary has a BSc in Business Studies, oh, wow. as well as a PhD in Art History. Mm -hmm. And her PhD was on the role of the patron in the development of the Renaissance. So you can see quite nicely how the two go together, mm. Business Studies. And she's written widely on the Italian Renaissance, and this is her most recent book on it. Okay, and uh, can I also ask you to introduce the main uh, themes of the book? Just to give, I mean, tell us everything we need to know to be able to follow your, your chat with her. So, the book starts in 15th century Italy. It deals with most of the city-states in Italy, so we learn about uh, the Kingdom of Naples, the Papal States, Ferrara, Modena, Florence, Venice, Milan, Mantua, and Padua. So a lot of, we, they all get a, a look in. And it's thematically structured. And so each theme tells a different story. So there are a bunch of characters in each theme. And the stories unfold according to these themes. And that's, where, and that's how you learn about each character and the different dynasties. And as the book progresses and time goes forward, you see how, oh, that person's uh, child grew up to become this person and they've done this. And, and then all this is told with respect to the dynastic politics of the region. And more importantly for the book, I think, how all these princes and uh, their artists went about creating all these works of art, the Renaissance that we we admire so much. Okay, so two quick questions. One, uh, what's the time frame then? It uh, begins mid-15th century, so around 1450s, 1440s, and ends in the late 16th century, so about 1580s, so about 150 years. Okay, and second question, just to set up the vibe. Um, <laughs> if you had to describe the period after having read the book and spoken with Mary, in three words, what would they be? Mm. Bloody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Colourful. Okay. And competitive. Okay. That's, uh, that's enticing. Is yes. enticing the word we want? I think so, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> with bloody and, uh, and... It makes for a great story. <clears throat> Wonderful, then. We're, we're looking forward to hearing it. Yes, so without any further ado, Mary Hollingsworth and Princes of the Renaissance. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to Please Expand. I'm Mahilius, and today I have Mary Hollingsworth, historian, with me on the podcast to discuss her most recent book, Princes of the Renaissance. Mary, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's, uh, your book is really beautiful. For a book on the Renaissance, I think it's, it looks like it is about the Renaissance, just the way it's presented. 
It's true. I, the publishers do. The publishers do did do a really fantastic job. I mean, finding the pictures, but it's also the fact that they're in the text and not separate yes. sort of special art with a capital A. They're sort of just everything's just all together. And I think you know, they, somebody really understood the designer really understood about designing because it's quite an it's quite unusual that the design is but with the different colours and the sort of. But it does make a difference, and it certainly livens it up. It makes a huge difference, I, especially with books that talk about art and, and architecture. It makes a big difference when you can see the objects you're talking about. It makes the points that the historian is yeah. trying to make all the more pertinent. Um, so when I was uh, researching about uh, Princes of the Renaissance, I came across your website, and I found that you have a master's in business studies and a PhD in art history. And... That struck me as a particularly interesting combination, especially since you've written so much on the nature of patronage in Renaissance Italy. Has that combination of business studies and art history given you particular insights into? Oh, I think I think it's changed. It definitely. It wasn't. I didn't. I didn't really choose to do business studies. I, it was slightly. I was. It was. It's a long story and not very interesting. But I did think I'd rather wasted three years until I started doing art history and you know business studies everything is about money and everybody the question people you know endlessly ask you know the more you're paid the more you're worth I mean that sort of mentality you know the more what the profit mentality I suppose and art historians just don't do money uh, they just don't understand it at all and so it my the questions I was asking always asking myself when I was doing my research was, you know, who benefits? What is, who is the person? I mean, what is the point of paying for all of this? And and suddenly I had complete, I realised that everything was actually not quite what other art historians necessarily thought it was and that there was another way of looking at it. So I, I, this, I got this by analysing wage rates, by the way, which is one of the most, the less, more amusing aspects of my <laughs> research, I think, spending hours analysing wage rates. But it was quite, it was, it, it was very revealing because, you know, the importance of the, the way that money actually is important, particularly in Florence, you know, which was an exclusively, um, which is where I did most of my um, PhD research, which is exclusively in a mercantile community with people whose entire mentality was, you know, orientated around money. So, so yes, it had a huge impact. And that's why I ended up looking at patronage of, of um, Renaissance art rather than, I don't know, Patrick, uh, to some extent, the production, rather than you know the stylistic kind of history that, that uh, or you know attribution or whatever that people are more more normally interested in. So, so yes, it had a massive impact on me. I don't know much about this field. Uh, so, is there is there something particular that this way of looking at things revealed uh, when uh, sort of thinking about the history of Renaissance art? Um. Well, in the sense that you just, if you if you look at a painting, you can and think of it from the patron's point of view rather than from the artist, the way the artist created it. If you think about the way that the what the patron wanted to get out, did he get out of this work what he wanted, and what did he want in the first place? You suddenly start looking at it in a completely different way. I mean, both ways are valid, and actually, a combination of ways is very useful. And the two interlock and intermesh, and it's not it's not either or, but it is. I felt a very well. It was something that I just started doing and yeah. it was good because I got a PhD, I, you know, it gave me my PhD, so yes. can't complain. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and so, and the Renaissance is, it's one of those moments in history where, you know, we've all heard about it, but I, I have to confess, you know, 
what exactly is the Renaissance? In particular, what I'm thinking, what I'm wondering is, what is the world that is being left behind? And what is being embraced when we're talking about Renaissance art in this time period that you're writing about? God, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I... Uh... That's a very difficult question to answer because the, the implication is that there was one movement and that is the implication of the word renaissance is that it was just one steady movement. And I argue that it actually it's a completely different um, a sort of jagged progression and different in di different speeds and different things in different places because of the patronage uh, factor. But I suppose at a at sort of broad level, it is a, a movement that goes well back into the, say, the 12th century, where people started looking again at the idea of the Roman Empire, when, which was, you know, did most did possess, if you like, most of Europe. And, and certainly the Ital Italy has a complete, you know, that is the Italian heritage. And the, the realisation that, that this, you know, that there was this past that actually existed because the buildings still exist. You could still see in lots of different, not just in Rome, obviously, you could see it in Rome, but, you know, all over, sort of quite small places, you know, like Ancona had a, you know, a massive um, Roman arch. Um, anything with a Roman tradition, anything that had been a, a city or a town in Roman times had its had its monuments and had it had its infrastructure, you know, the sort of the roads that went across Italy. You know, we talk, we have roads here, you know, Italian, Roman roads. But, um, you know, the roads that run across Italy, that, that's, the culture was still there. And, and the stuff, you know, the coins and things were still in the ground. You know, you'd be, you'd ply the field and find the coins, sort of shards. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't a distant, it wasn't some kind of alien to them, it wasn't an alien culture in quite the same way as the Romans are to us. I mean, it's quite exciting to discover, you know, a Roman pavement. But in, in, in Italy, it is, I mean, just there are hundreds of them kind of thing. It's just part of their... So they rediscovered their heritage in a slow way. And also, this is you've got to remember, it goes at the same... It's a, it's a time when um, Italy takes off as the cultural, as a, as a mercantile entrepot of Europe. Suddenly, the Italian merchants, so particularly the Venetians and the Genoese, and then the Florentines, um, are people you know are trading across. They're the people who are making money. They're the link between the the Middle East and the um, and the, you know the cultures of Northern Europe. But suddenly, money is much more available. People are buying things. There's a the demands. Everything goes up. The threat. The, the other point is that the papacy is not in Rome at this stage. It's in Avignon. Under the, under the control of the French kings, which gives them so there's even more reason for sort of moving stuff up and down and and trying to give and the Italians were very keen. Oh, sorry, the Italians are not a nation at this stage; they're just a collection of city states. But um, they, um, you know, they're looking for their own identity, as opposed to being um, under the thumb of either the emperor, which is or the pope, which is what they had been up and you know up until then. So. That is a sort of not necessarily terribly helpful answer. But the point is, it's not just art. And art is ultimately the last thing that really that gets affected. It starts out in sort of cultural, the revival of the cultural life of ancient Rome. And by definition, also ancient Greece, because in, in the sense that the ancient Romans vastly admired ancient Greece, you know, and, and claimed to source their stuff, um, you know, their ideas and their culture from, which they did, from that of ancient Greece. So, 
that comes along as well. Is what I'm. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, we are talking about the Italian peninsula, which right now is this collection of states. You mentioned many of them already. We know there are all these famous ones, Florence, Milan, Rome, Venice, um, not Rome, sorry, the papal states in this case. And they've all got their own distinctive identity, but at the same time, they're trying to, they're understanding their heritage in a way that implies certain uniformity. It's quite interesting the way that the, I think it's probably their medieval experience that gives them the ability to identify themselves as distinct from each other because the city-states in it before the renaissance they for example they all had their own patron they were they were christian ultimately they were all christian together but the you know they had their own patron saints and their own um pattern of feast days they celebrated the major feast days in all the places you know like sort of easter for example but that each each town had its own um, special kind of, I don't know, I feel like Christian calendar. So in Florence, for example, they celebrated the, there were dates, um, quite obscure feasts, like the Feast of St. Barnabas, which isn't particularly well known, but it's because they were a particularly impressive uh, military battle um, victory on the feast day of St. Barnabas. So they continued to, you know, they used that day as a sort of, as a special day to remember their heritage. And that, over the years, that sort of, that sort of adds up and then if you just add in because of course they are still christian in the roman period i mean the in the renaissance period you just then add in so verona for example would have um which has an amphitheater you know it was the birthplace of i can't remember it's i think it's livy um you know the feast his their feast day is somebody else and you know it all just mean it's sort of they which it so they allowed that enabled them to continue to be independent and individual completely individualistic and quite and also comp- competitive, I should say. So competition has quite a lot to do with it. Oh, I'm not right. going to be Sienese as the you know, the Florentines. Oh, I refuse to be Florentine. You know, so local competition is quite is quite important. Right. Yeah. And do, do these distinctive identities also mean that you get different pockets of Renaissance in each of these places, or is that more uniform? As a no, 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 that you do get, that's exactly what you get. But the important point is that it's not the same in every place. It's sort of, they're similar patterns and you can draw similarities, but they are massive general generalities if you want to actually understand what's going on. I mean, think about it from sort of, and an acad- most academics will, will concentrate on a, I don't know, sorry, most art historians concentrate maybe on a painter or on a particular locality or a particular type of, I don't know statue in a certain you know certain time and um, place limitations. So, but that doesn't unfortunately bring everything. That doesn't that's that's good in depth, but it's not. It doesn't give you the the, the breadth picture, mm-hmm. and the breadth picture is not uniform. So, it doesn't, it's, the Renaissance happens much later in Rome, for example, because okay. the popes aren't there, and when they do come back, they haven't got any money. Right. Okay. <laughs> You said, if you say that's simplistic, but yeah, okay. And just, um, and what exactly is it that these princes are patronizing? Uh, paintings, temples, but it's not just that, it's it's medals it, with their faces on them as well. It's everything, it's painting, it's, you know, it's paintings, um, ar- architecture, and sculpture, but it's also, um, and art historians don't 
look at this enough. Things like tapestries and, um, I don't know, different, uh, myolica ware, that sort of t uh, painted terracotta, beautiful terracotta plates. The has got a very good collection of them. Um, tiles, um, I don't know, homeware, musical instruments. Um, you know, there's all these things. Armour, that was another thing that they were quite, they didn't, they got their sword blades from Toledo, but the Italian um, swordsmiths would make the, um, you know, the decorated damascene handles. But these things are all, they're sort of, I mean, we, we call them the decorative arts rather sort of snottily, but, it, you know, right, it's, yes. all, it's all part of the same thing. Yeah. Right, so these are all expressions of this new and idea. Books, by the way, I didn't. I should have mentioned books and literary, literary creations as well. Okay, and looking a bit more closely at some of the people in your book, one and you, you've already mentioned the sort of the papacy and the move away from Avignon in the south of France to Rome. The figure of the Pope was quite fascinating in the context of your book. For one, because it seems that the Pope is essential. It's essential that the Pope likes you if you're a ruling <laughs> yes. prince. It helps a lot if the Pope likes helps you. helps an awful lot. And, you know, there are numerous cases when everything is going to hell. You're besieged. Suddenly the Pope dies. There's a new Pope and the weather's changed completely. Everything is rosy. Um, and secondly... And connected to the political importance of the papacy, unlike the princes of the Italian peninsula, the papacy is not a dynastic title. It's not passed down the way, you know, the title of Duke is passed down. And so you've got these individuals that become the most important, some of the most important political players in this region for as long as they're in power. But as soon as they die, they and their families become significantly less important. And one of the things that I, I was intrigued to read was this development of the role of the Pope as someone who, beginning with, I think it was Pius IV, as someone who will spend some of their uh, Pius political the second. capital... Pius, Pius II. Second. Thank you very much. Pius II. Someone who will uh, spend their political capital in trying to establish their family into the aristocracy. My question is, what impact did this changing role of the, of the papacy have for the development of the Renaissance, Renaissance art in Rome, in Italy? Uh, it gave the popes, I mean, it gave, the popes had, it, because of the way that they had to, the, what they were precisely what they were doing, which you very carefully, very well described, you know, basically in, in establishing their family in the, in their families in the aristocracy, which they weren't as it were before. Um, it, it gave the popes a particularly pressing, urgent need to, issue i don't know to create propaganda for their cause and art is a very the in a general sense of the art provided a massive um tool propaganda tool for them and so that's one of the reasons and they, and they i mean they also had to they also needed to promote the power of the church in a sense to bolster their own claims for their families and so you get you know you get them doing both things i mean you get them using art for both particular reasons and and sometimes it's quite difficult well for example there's a Sixtus the fourth is one of the sort of famous patrons who um not only patron but also um nepotistic popes who who has spawned a complete dynasty basically his nephew was julius the second etc and there's another you know there's a sort of 
and they're right. alive. But but one of the things he, I mean, he's responsible for the Sistine Chapel for building and the and the decoration of the lower half of the Sistine Chapel of uh, the Sistine Chapel. So, but the Sistine Chapel that is all about promoting the power of the church, the Sistine Chapel. It's not a family thing. But he built a library, for example, in the Vatican. Which there is, and there's a, a fresco in there of him surrounded by his cardinals. Now it's quite a debatable thing: is it him surrounded by his cardinals, or is it him surrounded by his nephews? Mm. There's no question, but they are definitely nephews, not not disguised children. Some of the popes had disguised children, but Sixtus didn't. But um, but it's an, it, you know you see, there's a kind of it, it, there's an interplay. You can't say it is definitely. This is definitely dynastic, and this is definitely papal, if you like, papal power. But the two things really merge together, and particularly in politics. You know, what's the the interests of the family versus the interests of the of the church? I mean, some of them are much. Some popes are much more explicit about about going one way or the you know going in, going pro family. Sixtus the fourth actually was quite a big reformist pope. So I mean he was a Franciscan, a master of the sort of a minister general of the Franciscan order. Um and he had so he had a vested interest in promoting church um reform, which he tried and didn't entirely succeed doing, part because he was promoting his own family at the same time. So one thing that I was asking myself as I was it was um the episode uh, not the episode sorry the chapter on Alexander the Sixth, uh, <laughs> Rodrigo Borgia. I totally, I'm t- yes, I yes, of course. He, he gets a lot of airtime. He and his family, they're very. Well, I do, I do, I do. My my basic academic research is on his um his son, uh, his grandson. Okay, who is his grandson? The, oh. the son of Lucretia Borgia, oh, who I was see. called Cardinal Ippolito d'Este, who looked very like his father, his grandfather, and went okay. into the church. Right. Okay. It was just as devious as his grandfather. <laughs> well, yeah, precisely. So here you've got someone who, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is quite openly promoting the interests of his family. You know, he's giving his son Cesare uh, the all these lands, naming them the Romagna, taking away lands from other people, saying that to one side. What I was interested in was so the marriage of his daughter Lucrezia to Alfonso. Uh, that's that, it. That, thank you very much. Yeah, and for that marriage to go through, uh, Alfonso's father uh, had to be paid a lot of money. He wasn't just satisfied, and I suppose I was trying to understand the political intrigue there because there isn't much in it for the Estes to marry into this family if Rodrigo Borgia dies tomorrow, if he stops being pope. There isn't yes. that sort of political capital anymore. That's because that that's where it becomes. We've got it. That's where you know there aren't enough. Those are the, would have been that would have been precisely the art, uh, the conversation that Erkelidaste, uh, who's you know Lucretia's fa- um, father-in-law, would have been having with his son Alfonso. You know what do we do? You know, do you, you know do we go for short-term gain? For long, or you know do we go do we suffer in the short term? Because the, if Caesarie had kept the the empire. I mean, it kept the Romagna, and um, Ercole hadn't gone with Alexander. Then, unquestionably, he would have lost Ferrara, mm. because it was only a matter of time before um, Caesarie's armies took Ferrara. So you either lose Ferrara and but stay, you know, stay clean, and if you see what I mean, or you 
you know, or you gain a daughter, or you gain an interesting daughter-in-law. But that was what was quite interesting because what Eccles' solution was to send ambassadors to Rome, to envoys, I think they have to call them rather than ambassadors, but send envoys to Rome, whose explicit task was to go and check on on uh, Lucretia Borgia to see what she was actually like, you know, to mm-hmm. see whether you, you know whether she was whether the sort of brazen, you know, painted lady that everybody was describing her as. Um, and actually, she wasn't. She was rather a charming, kind of quiet girl. And also, really interestingly, when she married um, Alfonso, I, that this is what I, I only recently discovered it. She didn't. She unlike. I mean, the for the Este and Ferrara have an immense tradition of patronage and you know spending money on cultural, general cultural things. And she didn't do that at all. She spent her money buying property buying fields and things and making money and i just think you know that is so different but yes. I mean, but you know but there's apart from sort of i mean a sort of a, a kind of relatively innocent liaison with a local one of her you know in-law cousin her, her cousin's in-law um she wasn't she wasn't a scarlet painted lady at all so yeah but that's that was the decision they had to take i mean that's just the question that i mean i can't say there isn't you know, that you can imagine they had they took it in en famille you know they that was something and there aren't any letters describing the issue so right there I we mean, are yeah I mean that so that was but actually one a dilemma it would be, sorry it would have been a dilemma I, yeah it would have been a dilemma I mean especially because is it with the arrival of the next pope that the Romagna is taken away from Cesare yes yes so technically the next pope is Pius the third who dies after after two weeks or something but okay. but you're talking yes julius the second yes the the, the, the first warrior thing he does is is i mean because he well he gets elected by persuade i mean the spanish cardinals was i just sort of wonder sometimes about their brains you know they were they, he made them endless amazing promises and he was never going to keep them i mean the moment he was elected that was it yeah sure yeah. enough yeah the uh the chapter on alfonso and isabella um, Desta of, Mant- uh, of Ferrara and Modena was uh, one of my favourite chapters actually uh, it's titled Survivors and I think one of the reasons why I liked it so much was because they were such likeable characters unlike a lot of the other players in this uh, time they were remarkably uh, virtuous and decent people yes I think that's right they were They and she, you know and also they were they I think we're very lucky that the Archives in the archives in both places, Mantua and Ferrara, have survived substantially in a way that the archives in Rome haven't. Um, I mean, the, the archives in Rome were devastated in 1527, burnt, I think, in 1527. Um, but in, in Mantua, oddly, they threw away the account books and kept the letters. <laughs> <laughs> but in Ferrara, they kept both. So we've got the letters, but it is it, it does mean that you've got a much you've got, it's it's a little bit difficult, but you have got a slightly more human. It's it's, it's possible to put a much more human gloss on mm. on Isabella and um, mind you, having said that, it's also possible to do it with the Sforzas in Milan. And let's face it, Ludovico Sforza he may well, have commissioned the Last Supper, but that frankly, <laughs> I was not a nice man. Yeah, well, I mean, I wondered though because when you introduced them. Alfonso and Isabella, you you set out the political setting and, you know, they're this Ferrara, Modena and Mantua are these two very small city-states 
sandwiched between these powerhouses, Venice and Milan, and they're always trying to, you know, stay neutral and, you know, not get involved in any conflict between them. And I was wondering whether, you know, they're sort of decent people also because of their circumstances, because if they try to be maybe aggressive or too passive, um, that they would have been gobbled up or... Very definitely. No, that's that's absolutely right. They would definitely... They didn't have... They weren't... They didn't need... Um, it, sorry, it would have, wouldn't have worked... didn't work for them. Look, yeah. you know, look what happened to, to Ludovica Gonzalo... Uh, Ludovica Sforza. It didn't, it didn't work for them to be... Um, you know, it, it mattered that they got on with their neighbours and that yeah. they stayed out of the big squabbles and they, you know, they didn't join up with... You know, that's another... That was another issue that presumably bothered Ecole d'Este in the choice of... Luke, you know, aligning himself with Rome because that automatically put him on a collision course with a Alexander's successor and b Venice. But uh, yes, that that's that is important. That is important, and it's also the lesson that Sigismondo Malatesta might have done well to learn. Yes, yes. <laughs> because yeah. he, if he, if he had been, you know, a little bit more common, a little bit less greedy, or a little bit less aggressive, and determined to enlarge his his. His state, he would still, you know, he would have kept it. A general rule of thumb, uh, at least from from your book, seems to be that aggressivity doesn't really pay off in this peninsula. Exactly, that's absolutely. I think we could tell Putin that, <laughs> but it, it rarely. I mean, you could now. certainly tell Hitler. I mean, it really, you know, over over pushing your luck isn't always a very good idea i mean you know you can what you need is is the sense of you need to be aware of uh, the you know the your 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 maximum boundaries yeah yes. and very definitely in particularly in 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 renaissance italy where there was very little you know there was it it wasn't a big place you know there were there were the, the boundaries were quite sort of I don't know what's the right word. Tightly controlled, you, you know. Um, I mean, it wasn't. If I mean, the important thing was that the important thing was the survival strategy, which mm. Mantua and Ferrara, because of their the ways in which they intermarried and um, you know made marital alliances with other small, small, small states, um, they could also you know they, it meant that they had backup. Venice, it, Venice tried to take over Ferrara. There were plenty of people ready to stop that. It was only at the very end of the 16th century that Ferrara got I don't seized, despite I don't know what word you use, <laughs> usurped, I don't know, yeah. by the Pope, um, okay. on the grounds that, that there wasn't a legitimate heir. And they fancied they fancied owning Ferrara as well as the rest of the papal states. Right. Just staying with the the Esther just for a bit longer. Isabella Esther. Uh, stands out as well in your book as a remarkable woman in this time for her, I suppose we could say her initiative in uh, deciding what kinds of uh, Renaissance projects to patronise, what kinds of artists to invite into her court. Was she, is this, is this indeed the case, was she this sort of uh, particular individual and what was it about her that enabled her to be in this way? I think one of the interesting things about is the important and interesting things about Isabella d'Este is the way that she herself was massively was closely involved in all her projects. She didn't just hand the paper, the, you know, hand an artist some money and say, you know, do this. She wrote. She did get quite. She was quite annoying. I mean, if you okay. watch Perugino was trying to you know paint a picture for her, but he was being a bit slow and he wasn't 
he wasn't in you know in Mantua. He was in um, in Rome, and she used to you know she'd write to him sort of letters saying you know no, no you're doing this completely wrong you know couldn't you you've got to check this and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you could right. see he was just going oh, I think I'm just going to tell her to go away. You know? <laughs> but so but she but that's in a way she you know she I suppose going to but goes back to the boundaries but she was really pushing the boundaries. I mean she she was quite exceptional. It's not just because of the. She's not exceptional just because of the surviving documentation that we have for her. She was exceptional for the time as well. As a, a patron on a mas, you know, on a on a on the scale, you know, I'm trying not to use the word masculine scale because it wasn't really quite like that. But you know, she had ambitions, just you know, like like her husband, right. to be known for her art or art collection and her antiquities. And you know, she was an interesting person. Although, as I say, irritating. Yeah, she she sounded fascinating. And just to consider sort of Alfonso d'Este or her husband, Federico Gonzago, you know, they were the the Renaissance prince. A large part of what they're doing is politics and war. I mean, I was intrigued to read that they would... I just assumed these princes would gain all their money from taxes or some form of taxation but they are, they're actually employed by other states to lead their armies in condottas right like contracts and but so there, there are these generals they're these sort of martial figures but at the same time they're also being they're also spending time investing in the patronage of arts i mean was this the was this the was this the sort of archetypal renaissance prince or were more people sort of Marshall and others were more um, about the art than humanism. I think certainly in the fifteenth and the early sixteenth century, most all I'm trying to think most of the I'm saying most of the princes because you Leonardo Dusto wasn't a great fighter, nor was Borso Dusto, but but by and large, yes, by and large they fought all summer. I mean, and you know, sort of did art, did the arts in the winter. Right. Okay. You know, well, a bit. I, that that is a massive. Sort of, you know, <laughs> sure. I mean, they, but they were involved. I mean, they were they were obviously involved. You know, but they there wasn't any fighting in the winter. Um, mm -hmm. like most mostly fighting stopped during the the when the, the well, it was quite tricky fighting in the snow and yeah, and and just to um, this, this, might, this is a very silly question, I think, but it's a question that I can't really. Uh, give an answer for myself that I'm satisfied with. We talk about we talk about these figures commissioning paintings or uh, cycles of paintings or tapestries, and in these tapestries and paintings are depicted sort of either mythological events in the past or real events that show important sort of events for the family, and all of these works of art are meant to work towards buttressing their their prestige and their their legitimacy as the rulers and from a very uh flat-footed sort of standpoint i just thought isn't it's a bit odd that you should have more legitimacy just because you're commissioning a painting which shows you having more legitimacy because your ancestor came from Troy or something. Um, so, what? How exactly did it work? What was the um, what was the thinking 
when when someone did this? What did other people think of it when they saw it? That's an interesting question. I would say, I would say the intro, the important point about it is that the the concept of um, the, 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 the business behind choosing a past event to legitimise your own position is something that they, is done at one level. It's all it, it, it's it's the way people, not so much theologians, more less. I mean, people. It's the way that people looked, for example, at David. For example, for, I'm thinking of King David, King mm-hmm. Solomon, David, and son of Solomon. You know, is, is perceived as a precursor of Christ, and that the sort of there is a pattern of you know you look at the life of David and you can compare it to events to, in the life of Christ, and they're sort of you know there this kind of pattern of pairing, if you like, in the Old and New Testament is quite an important one, mm-hmm. and it it is the same pattern as that. And I wonder, but I, I I don't think it's it's quite. I think it's very subconscious this idea that you go back to the past to legitimise. Um, the present because we we simply don't do it you you can't really you know what you you can't say you know I'm the great-grandson of you know I don't know Wellington and therefore I you know I'm going to be a brilliant general nobody would believe it's completely different now I mean meritocracy is it is is a very definitely a different mentality and it's it's something you know that's vanished from our um well, certainly from Western European culture, that idea that you're the descendant of some, you know, you, that you can validate um, a predecessor, use your predecessor to validate your own. But I think that's what it is. And I think it's, I think it's very, it's probably quite an important point. It, it goes, this goes back to your very first question about the Renaissance, because I think it, I think that goes back to the concept of validating, you know, Mantua, Mantua, in a sense, validated its own position because it was, you know, it had been a town for all that. It had been independent, a town, all that time before the Pope, before the papacy, and before the Holy Roman Emperors took over. That the pre, going back to your first question, the pre, I don't know, the prequel is the fact that the tenth, eleventh, up to the beginning of the twelfth century, Europe. Italy was just fought over by the Holy Roman Emperors from the north and the Pope in the south, and um, it's why you get some amazing you, you, the emperors in um, Sicily. It's why it's, it's one of the reasons why Sicily is even you know another sort of there's enough yet another layer of culture in Sicily that you know I mean to match all the other layers. Yeah. But it is quite an interesting situation. It's not, but that yes, that's all I can I can't. It's a mentality thing. Yes. Okay. That yeah. we don't understand because we don't we don't have it any longer. Do you think also the fact that they're commissioning these very expensive things also play a role in granting them sort of prestige and legitimacy, just, just regardless of the content, just but by virtue of being able to commission this kind of stuff? No, absolutely. The the really key thing is that that the whole um, key to Renaissance society is display. Yeah, you know, the grander you were, the bigger your entourage. The grander you were, the the, the smart, you know the more wonderful your clothes were, uh, or the more, it's a really basic level. The bigger your your the better your horse was. It was actually although, I mean, if you know about horses, you can you can tell the difference between you know what's a very good horse and what's a you know not a very good horse. You can you, you can understand, but um, 
they could all do it then. They mm. everybody understood. Somebody riding a particular type of horse, um, you know, was clearly different from somebody riding, you know, an ag or an, a mule, which we think of as a slightly, you know, not a good, I mean, a slightly insulting animal, in fact, was a status animal in those days. Mules were really expensive. Don't ask. I cannot understand why. But they were. And that was one of the really interesting things about researching I've done on on Hippolyta d'Este is just the cost of everything. And you can, you know, people knew, people could tell the difference and people chose to wear. The different dyes were much more expensive than others. So black, bizarrely, was a very difficult colour. Well, if you think about it, we probably know, you probably, you know, black was a very difficult colour to dye properly, to make it really black, black. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was more expensive than, say, green. Right. Um, but people knew that then, and people knew that, you know, I suppose it's the only equivalent we, I can think of now is that, you know, if you see somebody driving a Ferrari, you look at them, not necessarily that they're better, but you know that their cars cost more than a white van. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so actually, on this idea of display, um, one of the city states that really stands out is Venice, because Venice is very different to all the other places in, it, in, the, in the peninsula. And, and I want to talk about uh, Andrea Gritti as well. Fascinating figure. But before we talk about him, why is Venice different? Why is Venice different in the way it embraces the Renaissance to the rest of uh, the peninsula? First, Venice is never Christian. I doesn't, sorry, I could rephrase that. Venice is always Venice was, was never Roman. It was always Christian. It was founded in the Christian era. Secondly, it was founded by people who were escaping from Italy and so that you know that it's quite deliberately positioned so that it's literally difficult to you know it was off the sort of you know you couldn't in the days before the the the, you know the bridge and you know you had you had to sort of row over or sail over the lagoon to get to get to Venice it was very defensible in that sense and and its culture is completely different it always looked east never west and its tradition of links with the Byzantine Empire and the, for example, with the Orthodox Church are much greater. For example, there's a whole series of saints, churches dedicated to saints in Venice that the West rarely hear of. St. John Chrysostom, for example, you know, that's a, he is a Greek um, Orthodox, I think, saint. And there's a whole, you know, there's just that, that tradition, the whole, the, the, the whole of the facade of San Marco is covered with loot stolen from, you know, from Constantinople. But it's not, it's not Rome. I mean, it's Roman, but it's the Eastern Empire, not the Western Empire. And so that their mentality was always completely different from the rest of Italy. And they didn't really sort of go out of their way to say that they were Roman by, well, they weren't because they weren't, they, you know, they weren't founded. And, and also at the end of the Roman Empire, they became part of the Byzantine Empire, which was ruled from Ravenna, that little sort of chunk of eastern Italy, sort of up from Venice and down past Ravenna, was, was all part of the um, Byzantine Empire, not part of Western, Christ, Western Christendom ruled by the popes. So they went into the 15th century in a completely different completely different mentality so that's one thing and the second thing is that they they turned during the 15th century i probably it's difficult to make it clear in the book but they they didn't you know they didn't invade any i mean they they as long as they had you know just the little tiny coastal strip 
of Italy under their control. They weren't remotely bothered about the, what was going on. And, and they just cared about trade, keeping the keeping the roads open and the, you know, the highways and that kind of thing. But during the 15th century, they decided they need more security. So they, they edged their way into northern Italy. So that's when they conquered, beginning of the 15th century, they conquered you know, Padua, Verona, all those places quite close sort of to the eastern, um, to the Phoenician seaboard mm. and slightly pushed their way in. And at that point, of course, they had to engage with Italian politics, which was sort of pit. <laughs> way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. And and then it, it becomes the thing that Andrea Gritti does was sort of grip the bull by the horns and say, look, okay, right, you know, this is where this is survival is going to we're gonna to have to go pro Rome. And it really is it's extraordinary what he you know, what he did. And then to do it in architecture, in architectural terms as well. It's absolutely it's kind of art historian's dream. <laughs> seeing it sort of physically being used as propaganda is quite amazing. And another thing that um, makes Venice seem different to the other places is the sort of the, the modesty that is required of the, uh, is it the patriarchs of the city? Um, they're not expected to dress flamboyantly. They're not expected to display wealth. Exactly. That's a, that's a mercantile mentality, not a, an aristocratic mentality and that's another important distinction to make about renaissance um culture is that the mercantile mentality is completely well, obviously it's completely different because the aristocrats didn't work that was sort of almost you defined them by the fact they didn't work and they disapproved of working i mean they you know they just had pleasure did pleasure sort of and fighting and you know killed each other with lances and sort of but the, the uh, florentine the Florentine merchants in the 14th century, you know, defined themselves as non-aristocrats. I mean, they wouldn't do things like um, they didn't teach their children to ride. Sorry, they didn't teach their children to joust and things like that. They they didn't believe in idleness. They believed in sending children to school to learn maths, reading and writing, because that's what you need. You need to be able to record things. Um, whereas the Italian princes don't start educating their children until the beginning of the 15th century, or they... I could rephrase that, but they getting a proper, I mean, a serious education. And then they did get a serious education. So it is, it is the mentality, is the, the two mentalities are very different. Yeah. Is it, obviously Venice changes, especially under Gritti. And is that because if you're going to engage in Italian politics in this Renaissance period, you have to play this, this game of displaying your wealth I thought one interesting parallel. Oh, no, 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 no. That's oh. a good point. I think, I think, I think it's not quite as simple as that. It's, it's they have to play the game, um, the Italian political game, but they have the choice because, because of course, they're merchants technically, but they're not entirely merchants because the um, they're slightly. They're not. It's, it's not quite as conventional. Um, there aren't any aristocrats, for example, in Venice. It isn't quite as sim as simple um, as it is in, say, I don't know, Flor oh, the world, the rest of Italy. It isn't so. It isn't. It isn't that. It isn't that. It's that they because they come onto the mainland and and you know the, when they one of the ways obviously if you t you know you take over land you, you need to you know you need to hold it as it were. So you know the Venetians had farms and and sort of estates on the mainland and then they began to mix with you know people of their of their sort of background who were 
minor aristocrats, particularly in, in Vicenza and Verona, and picked up you know, a whole new set of manners, if you like, so ways of behaving. So suddenly they stopped thinking that profit was the only motive. You know, there was a sense that you had you know, the estate, you didn't buy your estate to make money. You did at the beginning, but you probably didn't buy the end. And you certainly didn't, you certainly downplayed your, your involvement in, in trade and upplayed your um, status as, some, as a sort of rural landed I'm trying not to use the word gentry, but you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, they wanted to, yeah, and, and there was the same thing happening um, in Florence with uh, your chapter on uh, Cosimo the First was mm. again this desire to stop being merchants and to be aristocrats. Exactly, and one of the first things that happens is that their clothing changes, and they suddenly start wearing, you know, they stop wearing the traditional long hood and coat and wear slightly more revealing items of clothing, sort of you know, tight trousers and <laughs> the tight hose. Right. They're always, you know, but that is about, that is also an anti-church thing. So. Okay. Because of course, well, it's, it's not anti-church, but it's, um, I could rephrase, it's not anti-church. It's just in opposition to, so the, the people in dr- long coats and dress, long coats are, are churchmen and people in short coats are, if, you know, our, our lay. Right. Well, unlike Venice, Florence is very much sort of smack in the middle of Italy. So, I mean, for large parts of your book, the Florentines are always playing some role. They're always involved in the politics. They're, you know, funding this army or backing this uh, cardinal. So, it, I mean, it comes as no surprise that eventually they would aspire to, you know, partake in the aristocratic world that they're constantly mm-hmm. trying to um, get involved with. Yes, it's true. And I think Cosmo's really fascinating. What's really fascinating about Cosmo is he doesn't just, you know, he he, techn- he has the aristocratic title, you know, of, sort of Duke of Florence, but he's not happy. He wants to be, you know, not just a duke and a new one at that. He wants to be, he wants a title that puts him above all the other dukes in the, in the, um, you know, on the peninsula, which is the kind of, level of greed which is quite staggering but on the other hand it's it's clever because it's only a title and yeah. it's you know and he you know gives him the grandeur it's not the land that he's which is is a quite an interesting point um he goes for the title but of course and in other interesting thing is that his successors have real problems i mean that the, the emperor refuses to recognize it um the, i mean the grand duke of tuscany is a is is a papal title but not recognized elsewhere Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, you you mentioned the Holy Roman Emperor. We should probably talk about Charles V. This figure that plays a pretty central role for um, most of the second half of your book, aside from all the political and military exploits that he's involved in, he's you know as the emperor, as the Holy Roman Emperor, he also has a role to play in the Renaissance in art. But he wasn't all that important in comparison to the more minor figures that we've discussed or to his great or with respect to his great rival France as the first of France we've been talking a lot about how patronizing artists and humanists was an essential feature right of appearing prestigious so why was it that Charles V did not pay much attention or as much attention as other people of his rank and how and how did he sort of get away with it well, I suppose, one, it goes back to something you said earlier, which is quite an interesting point. He didn't need to, 
promote himself. He was the proly Roman emperor. I mean, that was, <laughs> you know, that's it really, isn't it? Right, I mean, yeah. and he didn't feel, I mean, he legit, he had legitimately, nobody challenged his title. He'd legitimately inherited, you know, the kingdoms, he, the, the land that he, I mean, him, him, he certainly squabbled with Francis I about who owned which, but he, he, I don't think anybody disputed the fact that he was king of Spain um, or, Rome, or Holy Roman Emperor, or you know, ruler of the, the old Burgund, Burgundian uh, kingdom of sorry, Duchy of of Burgundy, but the so in a sense he didn't need to prove anything. That's one answer to the question. Another answer has got to be because he just had so much to do. I mean, he right. just travelled. I mean, he, he I can't remember. I've written it. I've written it down somewhere. But I mean, he made more journeys across Europe than anybody else. I mean, you know, obviously with his court. But I mean, they're exhausting. These, you know, I mean, it's we. I mean, I'm getting in a car. You can get in a car now and drive sort of 300 miles in a day without hesitating. You, know, that's a long journey in 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 Renaissance Italy when you've got to do it all by, you know, on horseback. It's quite tiring as well, I should think. And he did. He ran. I mean, one one of the things he was he was an exemplary emperor. I mean, he was. You know, he worked. He took his. He was incredibly dutiful and took his duties very seriously. And he had quite a lot of problems to deal with in different places, particularly, you know, and, and that not places close together. You know, he had a problem in Spain. He had a problem in Brussels. I mean, yeah. whether you go cross country or along the, you know, either he could go cross country through France or he could go across the Mediterranean rather dangerously and then over the Alps to Germany. Or he could sail up the coast over the Bay of Biscay to, to Antwerp. I mean... All three journeys are completely horrendous, whichever, yeah. and certainly couldn't be done quickly. So, yeah. I mean, it is quite an interesting. It is, I mean, he. I think because he worked, and the other thing is that he did. De he did have. He did delegate quite a lot, and for mm -hmm. example, his sister um, Mary of Hungary, who ran the Netherlands for him, she wasn't seriously major patron. It's slightly unfortunate that virtually nothing. Of her architecture remains. It's all been, it's all burnt either by, either by Francis the First or by Henry the Second. Right. And then what wasn't burnt by then was, you know, destroyed by Wellington and the First World, and then the First World War. I mean, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's really it is, but it's an area of land that people have fought over. Yeah. For centuries, the Netherlands. I mean, the whole, you know, the sort of the Low Countries, the sort of, um, I suppose, what you'd now call Benelux. But it is, it is, you know, that uh, so. I mean, there's much more. There was more, you know. She, which was paid. I mean, I, he and she, in a sense, was his patron. I mean, acted in. I mean, she was spending his money. So in that sense, but also she was promoting his position and hers. You know, as she, they, the power of Spain and the power of the empire. Well, that's fascinating. And, and uh, just um, a question on their relationship: Were they in contact on this issue? Were, were they? Would she sort of inform him? Of the kinds of stuff, kinds of projects that she was uh, beginning. I don't think so. We don't have any letters that are sort of massively. I mean, they they did talk. I mean, they must have talked about these things, and they certainly both. You know, they would go off. Right, they both adored hunting. So when he was up in in um, in the Netherlands, they would. You know, they probably spend a lot of time talking about things. They certainly what she was very. She used to put. You know, she put on spectacular shows and sort of dancing and sort of I mean entertainments you know right. they, they 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 must have talked about these things they certainly would have talked about Titian for example because Titian painted 
didn't paint her or he did he put well sorry we haven't got his we haven't got the portrait of her but he did paint you know he was charles charles the fifth sorry he Titian was Charles V's sort of official portraitist, but he also did an awful lot of work for Mary of Hungary. And they must have talked about what he was com- what he was commissioning, yeah. what she was commissioning in his, you know, in his name, as it were. But it is a very good point. He didn't he didn't commission very much. It, and there is there is, of course, the palace in Granada, which is grander than it. Um, I mean, we don't often go in and probably didn't see very much um and the other thing is he died quite young yeah. i mean he didn't have a sort of you know he he was war he wore himself out i mean he he abdicated because he was so exhausted <laughs> makes a change for a renaissance prince to say and then on the other hand you've got francis the first who seems to play a massive role in the exports of renaissance art into france and yeah. beyond critical right and is so is francis the first then is is he concerned about promoting his image and sort of the prestige of his court yes i mean he really did have to he you know he nobody really challenged i mean charles v didn't challenge his position as king of france but he they were rivals and he certainly he couldn't he couldn't out uh, he couldn't own more i mean he couldn't uh, you know he couldn't sort of well, he wasn't going to try conquering the whole, you know, Spain or something, hopefully. I mean, I don't think he even in his wildest dreams thought of that. But, you know, he needed to show that he was, it, he was, you know, better in another field, if you see what I mean. He had prestige, cultural prestige, even though perhaps um, he didn't have quite the same imperial um, stretch. And is, is Francis I, is he an important figure in the development of the Renaissance in Northern Europe? Yes, Okay. Yes, I would say he's really he's one of the key figures because of the way that he just encourages Italian artists to move to move to France and stay there. You know, to have a have French have French careers. The the whole nearly all of the gallery, um, um, his gallery at at Fontainebleau is you know the the three main artists who were involved in in its construction and particularly in its decorations. That's Rosso and Primaticcio and somebody called Schiebeck da Carpi, a very strange name, but he, he he comes from north from Carpi in northern Italy. He was the woodworker who did all the inlaid wooden panels and things, which is, you know, another, is, is an amazingly skilled um, work. But they were all Italian. They all trained in Italy. So, and, and, and you know, I mean, he, he, I can't even begin to, I mean, you know, for example, he sent Primaticcio to Italy, to Rome, to make plaster casts of all the of the bit of the famous classical statues in the Vatican collection which he then uh at quite monumental cost cast in bronze and to decorate the first he decorated them in the gallery he had them in the gallery um and that's where they originally intended for and Catherine de Medici moved them out into her into her garden because she also rather liked them but Catherine de Medici is often considered to be the person that introduced Italian culture. Yeah, there's always all the stories, you know, everything that's remotely Italian in Italy is always her fault. But in fact, it's Francis I that starts it off. Wonderful. Okay. Mary, um, thank you very much for... Thank you. That was interesting. Uh, it was, yeah, it was fascinating. It was so... I, I loved reading your book. Uh, I loved looking at the pictures. <laughs> 
it makes a change from having to go onto Google and to look at everything. And, and this conversation really brought it to life. I have just one final question. Yep. Um, what are you currently working on? What am I working on? Yes. Oh, God, that moves straight on from what I've just said. I'm <laughs> writing a biography of Catherine de Medici. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. How is, that, how is that? Which is perhaps why I knew so much. No, it is, it's a really, I thought it was going to be very, I mean, it is very different. It's France, and you've got all her letters are in French. But um, it really is fascinating to see it just as a sort of, you know, see how the, the, the cultures really are not so separated despite the French, what the French would tell. Well, so it's, it's a very complicated story, yeah, Catherine yeah. de Medici, but it is right. an interesting one. Fascinating. Okay, well, I look, I look forward to that. <laughs> a year or two to wait. I've got to yeah, yeah, sure, no year, problem. but it won't come out till next year. Okay, okay. Well, Mary, uh, thank you once again for your time. Thank you. It was interesting. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello and welcome back. That was Mary Hollingsworth and Princes of the Renaissance. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. And now Julia and I are going to have a little chat. Julia, a modern Italian <laughs> from the noble uh, region of Friuli, <laughs> which didn't even get Probably. mentioned once <laughs> in the interview. It never does. <laughs> um, what did you make of our discussion of Renaissance Italy? Okay. Um, hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> to begin with. Um, let me start by saying that I found the discussion extremely pleasant to listen to. I found Mary just, I don't know, just so fascinating to listen to. And yeah. perhaps um, compared to other episodes, this was extremely based on storytelling. So it was just extremely interesting to me to just listen to, to stories yeah. of, of these... Uh, and the book is like that. People that we can really relate to. And as, as a modern Italian, of course... It's easy to put myself in their shoes in a way, but on another way, uh, in another sense, they are completely in a different world, of mm. course. I think that the most interesting thing for me was to really reflect on the relationship between art and identity. She seems to uh, emphasize in more than one place that in a moment of loss of identity after the Dark Ages, uh, Renaissance is this period where Italians remember their or pay more attention to their Roman origins. Yeah. And in some way, one may think that this would create a very cohesive movement, a nationalist movement, whereas what happens really is that each city-state undergoes their own Renaissance. Right. And and this just fosters the dis differences between regions that are so deeply felt in Italy right now. Mm. I, I'm not saying that regions came out of that and that only. But, but of course, it seems to be a, a moment where each region looks for their own identity and art plays an important role in that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I never thought much about it until our interview. But I, I found Mary's point that each region expressed the... So the question, what is the Renaissance, is made more difficult by that fact that each region expresses its own Renaissance. And it has its own particular way of engaging with the past again. And this, of course, triggers a few thoughts. Like, one is 
to what extent it was a competition. Like, was it an aesthetic competition? Were, were mm. there rumors about what? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of competitiveness, right? So, but this. on the other hand, I I imagine that it wasn't just that, but also showing your power to your own subjects. Definitely, in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, to the other aristocrats in your court. Exactly. Displaying to, your to, because that your probably power. would justify your um, your position. Yeah. And then, of course, one <laughs> one question is also how authentic or mm. honest or um, how authentic they? in like in the sense in how caring. much did they like the art? <laughs> Not just like the art, but how like was it a mere instrument or were they living in a world where art had a meaning really and again of course there's a whole other th- train of thought that <clears throat> leads us to compare what we heard you speaking about with Mary and the contemporary world because of course I, I'm, I'm sure some people would say well but it's the same today in terms of it's identity making and uh, I don't know the symbol of uh, each country, it's actually their most famous, I don't know, building and whatnot. Yeah. So on this, how honest they were, it's an interesting question. And we often forget that the Renaissance is not just about paintings and architecture. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we spoke about was books, mm. medals, uh, armor, a lot of stuff that we wouldn't necessarily think of as part of the Renaissance, but it's this whole collection of objects that are being created in a certain aesthetic. So I wonder whether the right approach isn't to think whether they genuinely found them all beautiful, but whether they genuinely cared about what they were invoking, the spirit they were invoking, the aesthetic they were invoking. Or maybe simply they they were honestly invested in it and the way in which that manifests is exactly that they didn't even pose the question. Like that's exact. like plates are to be decorated Mm. and handmade and that's it. It's not that you pause to say oh my god is this place beautiful? Oh I'm so lucky that I live in this time. Well presumably though the artists would have contemplated these questions but one wonders I don't know enough about um, individual renaissance artists mm. and, and the kinds of words they use to describe what they created mm. I mean what was the word beauty was that that would be one of their main concepts we should ask Mary again <laughs> <laughs> we should yeah and and of course this naturally leads to parallels between that word and our word because of course now it's less about people in power funding buildings, though there's still a good part of that. Yeah, yeah. But um, we are, of course, <laughs> deeply involved in lives full of art and we are enslaved to fashion. And they are definitely identity-making features yeah. of, of our reality as well. So, and what about branding as a whole? We would never consider it as art, a mm. logo, or something, something, or something that we associate with a, with an individual. But it's definitely identity making yeah. in the way that you're talking, and there's definitely something aesthetic about it. 
and it definitely uh, signals different kinds of powers. Yeah. And I say different kinds because it's not just a matter of hierarchy, um, but it's also a matter of quality of like the kind of power you and like what domain you're in, yeah. you're the fashion domain, the yeah. tech domain. Exactly. Are, yeah. And moving on uh, to another question, another point I found uh, thought-provoking in your interview is uh, at a certain point you ask, well, but to what extent could these identity-making process really work? Because, like, for <laughs> why would I gain more power, prestige, and so, um, above all, justification mm. by depicting myself as an ear here yeah uh. and I, I can never pronounce this word um of the of the gods yeah and there from what i understood the the answer was well you know it's a different mentality mm-hmm. that's right yeah <laughs> which and the mentality is something like we all agree that legitimacy comes from our ancestors which is obviously I, I guess it, it's all a matter of playing the same game mm-hmm. something like doing that is allowed in our understanding because we need to know our sources like our um, our ancestry and we know that it's impossible to gain uh, knowledge on it so we are fine to follow the flow and go <laughs> with it and I mean another main difference so we, we, we sort of said that there might be some similarities with the use of aesthetic objects between nowadays and, and the Renaissance. But one big difference, sorry, and how these objects might go, to, might strengthen someone's legitimacy. But a big difference seems to be that in the Renaissance, being a certain person, having these kinds of objects was also a moral justification. It came with certain moral attachments that you were uh, good or the right person to be there. Oh, wow. Whereas, because by virtue of being the ancestor of someone and showcasing that, it came with a sense of nobility mm. and no, being better. Whereas now we've lost that sort of bit. Yeah. I also wonder whether there's any morality attached to the perception of, of a brand or something, whether anyone thinks there is a certain goodness by being the founder of Tesla, by being <laughs> the creator, the inventor. No, I think this aspect... We, we lost for good. <laughs> I don't think that any generalization can be made from a certain kind of look. Because mm. even if you take um, King Charles's uh, fashion, which has been the symbol of, uh, I don't know, the old-fashioned See. virtuous person. Yeah. Uh, exactly, now it's British aristocracy full stop. Mm. It's just like, oh yeah, you like fishing. Um, it's. I think it's detached from the virtuousness, mm. but something we did gain instead, I think, is the um, room for individuality, of course. Right. Like now, probably there is room for self-expression that is of the self, whereas, which is not of my city or of my um, your ancestors or ancestors and yeah. so forth, and and. If I may, something that is totally personal, but that all this reminded me of is we went to Vietnam over uh, Christmas, mm-hmm. and one of the sm- of the most beautiful mausoleums was um, I don't remember the name, <laughs> but w- was basically this uh, this place where the body of one of the 
12 or a 13th. Yeah. Uh, kings of Vietnam was uh, buried and the place is stunning like the architecture is incredibly gorgeous is on the side of a, of a hill and the decoration is just beautiful um, and it took of course years to build and inside it's decorated with these very tiny and super colorful pieces of ceramic that are, have been used as a mosaic on the ceiling and all for walls and this king actually was considered uh, i mean as far as our guide told us um was considered as being extremely weird and vain and superficial because he was so much into art rather than war and he was putting so much effort in making things pretty he also he made he made a lot of designs himself, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I forgot to mention, but this place has been drawn by him. But this didn't give him any prestige in mm. how history now is told. Uh, he's just the the weird weak one. Right. We spent um, too much money on art. Exactly, and exactly like this place is ridiculous. We could have done other things. Yeah. And so this makes me think whether the, the difference in, uh, in which we tell the story in Italy has to do with, yeah, with what, why we have a different view of these kind of things in Italy. And one idea may be because it was a more general phenomenon, like more people did it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a, like, no one was an isolated case. Or whether, mm, I really don't know, whether the legacy of it has been uh, acknowledged more widely afterwards or whether it's because there was the connection with the Roman roots, which gave uh, robustness to, to this legacy. Or whether, yeah, <laughs> our guide was simply <laughs> dismissing the achievement of this king for, for no good reason. Yeah. I mean, basically you're asking, why did the Renaissance occur in the way that it did? Well, why... In the place that it did. But also, why it's recognized and admired, mm-hmm. whilst I'm sure that something similar has happened similar in, in terms of using art to make a statement yeah. and caring about that aspect of aesthetics mm-hmm. and as a valuable thing yeah. as a as a good thing not just as a pretty thing why it hasn't been recognized and in the case of the zambra yeah and in in other places mm-hmm. in in, in the world. Well, to be fair, I mean, when we saw it, we recognized it as being beautiful and we appreciated it. Exactly, but I had never heard of it. <laughs> well, because... And maybe I'm just ignorant. I mean, how many people know about any Vietnamese kings? Don't say these things. <laughs> no, no, that's true. But but I don't think that this is a, a good answer. Like, <laughs> because the, the question then rises again, why don't we? Well, well I imagine it's probably because he wasn't part of this movement that multiple people were part of and that eventually sort of encompassed an entire continent. Exactly, but this, I think, raises other questions about the value of collective actions Mm -hmm. and whether it is fair that some actions are recognized and valued just because they're collective rather than individual, basically. Which, I mean, is the very old story in aesthetics. It's the very same... I mean, it's a similar question to... Why Duchamp's toilet uh, is famous and not the other ones? Uh, I mean, but I think also 
this is just what happens when an individual goes against the whole cultural movement of a society. You're either going to be a revolutionary and change everything, or you're just going to be disliked yeah. for going against the grain and for sort of championing values that the rest of society doesn't recognize. Yes, definitely. Though I, I don't think this will satisfy me, but <laughs> we can give this from, for another time. Um, to conclude, let me ask you, <clears throat> what is it that you will bring home from this discussion? I think, so aside from gaining a lot of new knowledge of these wonderful characters from the Italian Renaissance, so the book is sort of thematically structured and each theme has a host of characters, like four or five characters, and then the story unfolds. So aside from learning a lot about these, a lot of interesting people, I think what I will take home most from this book is this idea of the, the Italian prince as both warrior and patron of the arts, as people who are simultaneously engaged in something so destructive and violent and with something that is delicate and floral and has nothing to do with war in many respects and how both equally give prestige and uh, mm. construct their characters how you know you've got people like Sigismundo Malatesta who Sigismundo Sigismundo Malatesta <laughs> who had a terrible temper as his name might suggest and he just cared about war and he wasn't really into the art stuff and he was regarded badly aside from have, aside because aside from the fact that he was an unpleasant person <laughs> it was it reflected poorly on him that he didn't invest in this kind of stuff and he only built castles and fortresses <laughs> and you've got other princes like the gonzagas of mantua and they're small people they're kind of irrelevant uh, they have their condottas every summer and they fight but you know all they have to increase people's opinion of themselves is their particular investment in in art and in these projects and that's a very interesting way to look at the renaissance yeah and i think it's also i find it's very reassuring in a way thinking that it's so we're so we, we are wired in such a way that we will never be able to detach ourselves from beauty one way or another. Um, I just find it extremely soothing as a thought. Yeah, it's <laughs> against the, the fear of robotization. No, we'll always have that. It's, it's it's something that just shines and glitters when we yeah. think about it. Yeah, I mean, and then you think about Balenciaga. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think but I do think that one of the the best museums I've, I've ever seen is the National Museum in Athens exactly because there's a massive section on jewelry and I was roaming freely there and I was thinking oh my god I would wear all of them and I felt so deeply connected with my roots because by this sameness of taste mm -hmm. of aesthetic taste right. in a way yeah yeah it's um, yeah it's soothing yeah okay Anyways. Great, Julia. Well, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. And thank you for interviewing Mary. Yeah, it was a great pleasure for me. And make sure to join us next time where Julia and I will both be interviewing uh, Michael Hunter on The Decline of Magic, which uh, 
and the importance of um, supernatural beliefs. <laughs> yes, on supernatural beliefs. So thank you for joining us uh, and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.